taking the death toll in the fifth wave to 7,493. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the final day of the month and the quarter, Thursday the 31st of March. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines on Money Talk on Radio 3. Shanghai continues to see an increase in COVID-19 cases as it reported almost 6,000 new infections on Wednesday. That's a 34% increase over the number of cases reported on Tuesday. The Pudong district of Shanghai has entered the fourth and final day of a citywide lockdown this morning. The second stage will start on Friday with Pushi to the west of the city to be locked down for four days. The Shanghai Municipal Development and Reform Commission said food prices were surging in Shanghai since the lockdown started. The average cost of a Chinese cabbage jumped over 17% in just one day and pork prices rose over 8%. Yesterday, CCTV quoted a state council meeting as saying that Beijing will roll out policies to stabilise the economy in the face of downward pressure and will refrain from introducing measures not conducive to stabilising market expectations. CCTV also reported that Beijing will step up the issuance of special government bonds. Germany and Austria have triggered emergency plans over possible gas supply disruption and have taken the first steps towards gas rationing. The early warning phase, which both countries have begun, is the first of three steps designed to prepare the countries for a potential supply shortage. In its final stage, the governments would bring in gas rationing. German inflation rose to its highest rates for 40 years in March. Harmonised consumer prices rose by a bigger than expected 7.6%, up from 5.5% in February, boosted by a 39.5% jump in energy prices from a year earlier. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde warned that Russia's war in Ukraine was delivering a supply shock to the Eurozone economy. She said the war was pushing up prices, slashing growth and draining consumer and business confidence. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Andrew Collier of Orient Capital Research with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold at SafePro Group. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US and European stocks fell and oil prices rose on Wednesday following conflicting reports about progress in the Russia-Ukraine peace discussions, further troubling inflation data from Europe and a gloomy assessment of the European economy from ECB President Christine Lagarde. The S&P 500 fell 0.6% to close at 4,602. The Dow declined for the first time in five days, losing 65 points to end the day at 35,229. The Nasdaq Composite Index lost 1.2% to finish at 14,442. Apple, which has risen for 11 consecutive sessions, slipped 0.7%. In Europe, the regional stock 600 fell 0.4%, snapping a three-session winning streak. Germany's DAX index fell 1.5%. The UK's FTSE 100 bucked the trend, rising 0.6%. 
Hong Kong stocks rose to a four-week high yesterday as investors welcomed progress in Ukraine peace talks after Russia pledged to de-escalate the conflict. The Hang Seng Index gained 304 points, or 1.4%, to 22,232. The Tech Index rallied 0.3%, having been up as much as 2% earlier in the day. Hong Kong-listed video platform Guaishou gave up an 8% intraday gain to end the day over 6% lower after Beijing said it was planning new curbs on the country's 30 billion US dollar live streaming industry to exert greater influence over the content consumed by young people. The Wall Street Journal said Chinese authorities are drafting new regulations to cap internet users' daily monetary spending on digital tipping, and officials are also planning to set a daily limit on how much live streamers can receive from fans and will start requiring online platforms to report live streamers' identities in income and profits every six months. Billy Billy also turned red on that news, converting a 5% gain into a 2.5% loss. Evergrande New Energy Vehicle dropped almost 11% in Hong Kong following a seven-day trading suspension. The company said it's unable to report audited financial results on time and trading will be suspended again from tomorrow as a result of missing the end of March deadline. Shares of Evergrande rose 8.6% after the company said on Wednesday that it would sell its stake in a 223,000 square metre real estate project in Guangzhou worth about 575 million US dollars. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite added 2% to 3,267, its biggest gain in two weeks. Chinese property developers surged with an index tracking the sector, jumping 6%, making it the best performing sector of the day. And in the A-share market, over 30 firms hit limit up as more local governments eased property cur- uh, curbs. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil rose close to 3%. It's at $114.22 a barrel this morning. In Europe, natural gas prices jumped 12% higher after Germany warned of potential rationing of natural gas. Gold climbed 0.6% to $1,933 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note settled four basis points lower at 2.36%. And the US dollar is close to a one-month low. The euro this morning trading at $1.11.5. The Japanese yen rebounded from its recent slide, climbing 0.9% against the dollar to 122 after the Bank of Japan boosted its bond-buying operations. One British pound buys $1.31.5 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 28 cents. And the Chinese yuan is at 6.36 versus the dollar in offshore markets this morning. Mixed picture across Asian markets. In Australia, the SX200 is up 0.4%. In Japan, stocks have just opened there. The Nikkei 225 down uh, 0.9%. Uh, stocks in South Korea slightly higher. The Cosby up 0.2%. And looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. It's 8.10. Let's welcome our guests. As always, on a Thursday morning, we have with us personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Fahr. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us on the phone is Andrew Collier, Managing Director at Orient Capital Research. Morning to you, Andrew. 
Good morning, Peter. Let me start off with the Shanghai lockdown. As we heard earlier there, um, cases continue to increase there, almost 6,000 infections yesterday. Uh, the Pudong district of Shanghai on the fourth and final day of a citywide lockdown. But on Friday, Pushi starts its four-day uh, lockdown. Local governments and the central government offering all sorts of support to businesses in the form of tax incentives, rent rebates, cuts in fees and, um, and exemptions. China's two leading chip manufacturers, SMIC and Huahong, which both have factories in the Pudong New Area, have committed to maintain normal production. But costs are expected to rise due to increasing logistics and transportation costs and employee subsidies. Enzio, let me start with you. Uh, this unexpected lockdown, quite extreme, far more severe than anything we've seen in China before. What are the consequences of it? Well, I'm afraid it's going to knock growth in the short term because obviously things just sort of come to a grinding halt. Mm. Um, again, I repeat my message of, of yore that I don't think, I mean, I'm very much for this let the let the herd immunity build by by letting go. But we also know that in China, according to some studies, studies of studies, we know that that there would be many, many millions of deaths if that were to happen. So I'm afraid they're kind of stuck with this policy for now. And then we'll just have to see how they um, ride out of it. I mean, one of the problems is the reduced mobility, isn't it, which is really going to hit right. the service sector. I saw one report that says a one percentage point reduction in the mobility index is associated with about a uh, 25 basis points deceleration in China's GDP growth. So that's going to have a big impact. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of these things where, which, again, will, uh, cockhead as it sounds, will actually reinforce my view of buying the market because I think that the the position, particularly the, the, the central bank, will have to ease monetarily very considerably to create this, in my economic class jargon, excess supply of money to, and that then money will, that money will then go into the stock market because it's excess to the supply, to, to the needs of the economy. It will go into the stock market and that will reignite the stock market. So, I remain of good hope, and I think actually, if anything, these lockdowns would, that's just my case, that they're going to have a lot of easing on the way. We'll get into that later in the show, I hope. Yep, we certainly will. Um, Andrew, it looks like China's getting further and further away from hitting this 5.5% growth target, doesn't it? Uh, well, that target is not really a realistic target. It's basically a fabrication of the central government based upon their own hoped for gains in the economy. Essentially, they haven't been flooding the market with stimulus. Uh, total social financing has been uh, relatively growing relatively modestly. Mm. Um, they have targeted growth for the bond market, particularly local government bonds. Um, but a lot of stimulus is actually occurring through um, uh, what I call shadow uh, institutions like uh, the asset management companies and the local government uh, vehicles. They're, they're really, since the three red lines policy came in a year and a half ago on the property market, they've been pretty tight on credit. Um, so if we get into a situation where you've got hundreds of thousands of people dying with COVID, and as you indicated, mobility collapses, then we could see a flood of cash through the banks, through the stimulus, the typical measures. But so far, we haven't seen that because mm. they're very, very nervous about a debt bubble. China's page book was mm. was quite gloomy, wasn't it? It showed borrowing by Chinese businesses actually plunged in the first quarter, 
And interest rates on loans uh, jumped higher, even though the PBOC is trying to encourage more lending. Well, why is that? Why, why are companies not borrowing? Is it because they're just so uncertain about the future? Well, exactly. I mean, if you're a state-owned firm and you have state contracts and you kind of know what your business is, uh, but if you're a small business, uh, you're, you're, you're suffering from a lot of indeterminacy and a very bad year in terms of demand, and there's no reason to incur debt because you're going to have to pay it back. Mm. So until they, they, you know, things stabilize, and that's what Leoha is talking about, um, I think it's more talk than action, um, not, we're not going to see much of uh, much gains. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Sorry, NGO. So just one little thing. You pointed out quite correctly that the average interest rate for bank loans has gone from 6.1% to 8.5%. Just for our listeners, that's a gain of 39%. That's a pretty hefty mm. increase in the cost of borrowing. So we kind of all get why they're borrowing less. Let me um, let me ask you both about Luher's comments. Uh, he's said quite a lot of things um, which have buoyed the markets. It seems that, first of all, a lot of them aren't happening, and some of them even aren't true. I mean, this talk about uh, Chinese regulators close to an agreement with U.S. regulators on the delisting of uh, Chinese companies uh, over in the U.S. seems to be a long way uh, from happening. We heard Gary Gensler, the uh, the chairman of the SEC, speak last night saying they were a long, long way from agreements. It seems some of this stuff was just said to really try and juice the markets, wasn't it? Um, I don't think Leoha made that comment about the agreement on the accounting standards of the United States. If I'm not mistaken, that was a report in either the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. Um, but his comments about uh, the markets were taken uh, favorably. But I didn't believe them because the government has been very consistently tightening credit since mm-hmm. the three red lines policy came in because they're deathly afraid of a collapsing uh, property bubble that they can't control. So I found I was a little surprised because usually the government doesn't talk things up quite so loosely. NCO, what would you make of the comments? We need to see some action, don't we? Well, yes, but I'm afraid the action, I'm going to shift the, shift the basis of this, is a little bit this tug of war between the regulators and Liu He, who I think has a lot of respect on the economic side of it, OK? So the regulators made this drastic move last year of pretty much sort of killing a lot of the tech shares that we all know about, I hope they don't do that again this year, and as long as they don't, the market will sort itself out. But um, I think that Liu He is certainly at least trying to prevail in this tug of war with the regulators, because that's going to be a major battle, I think, between who's going to, who's going to win. If, if the regulators win again, then the growth story is a little bit is going to be pretty tarnished. And if, if Liu He wins, well, then I think we can buy quite safely. Well, the regulators are winning at the moment because despite Lou Hurst saying that policies were now going to be coordinated much more with economic uh, priorities and make sure that they're actually market supportive, we heard yesterday that Chinese authorities are now drafting new re- regulations on uh, video platform streaming companies and, and what people can do on them. So it seems like the regulators are winning, aren't they? I, get, I mean, I have no insight. I don't speak the language. I, I guess you're probably right. Um, I, th- I think it's kind of a, a story that's going to unfold, frankly. What do you make of this, Andrew? Well, Andrew, yeah. I, I, would differ- I would differentiate between the tech crackdown. Uh, I just finished a book on this subject and the property market. The tech crackdown is going to continue. And that is not an economic uh, hit on China as much as the property market. The real uh, big deal is the property market restrictions, because that accounts for a, a significant portion of GDP growth 
and also affects local government financing. And so far, they've been quite consistent on that. We've seen the Evergrande collapse as a perfect example of that. And there's been very little inclination by the central government and the regulators or the cent- or the state council to try to assist them. Mm. The, crackdown, the tech crackdown, however, is something that's obviously a front and center to Xi Jinping's rule. And he feels that, the, like with the Kwai Show incidents and live streaming, that they're going to continue being fairly draconian on the tech sector. Do you see that, Enzio, as well? Do you see more signs that this tech crackdown is actually going to continue? Well, again, I'm I'm really, because this is very micro, I'm not qualified to say. I just think that um, if if the tech crackdown is there because the government um, doesn't want its power base usurped, I kind of get it, not that I agree with it, but I get it. Um, I, we all know from last year that Tencent and Alibaba, I believe, and please correct me, both had their own payment systems that may have, in fact, threatened some of the PBOC's um, monetary policy sort of room for maneuver. So I get that. Um, but other than that, I wouldn't be so bold as to talk about the tech sector, of which I'm already I'm, I belong to, to the IT crowd anyway. So I'm going to mm. fall back on that. Andrew, on the, on the property side, we're seeing a lot of um, developers, Chinese developers, failing to file their audit reports on time here in Hong Kong. And as a result, uh, they're going to be suspended. More than 70 companies now have said they're going to postpone their results, a large number of them, uh, in the property sector. That's an increase of about 75% uh, from, from last year. Fitch rating and also auditors resigning from these companies as well. Um, this is not a good sign, is it, for, for corporate governance and, and financial transparency issues? Well, I find it rather hysterical. I mean, essentially, the, there was a sort of a wink-wink nod-nod between the central government and the regulators in the property market saying, OK, as long as you can raise the cash and you can keep the game going, then go ahead. Mm. Now, that the, now that the cash is dwindling, what they're discovering is that the developers have been making side deals in the shadow, in the shadow banking system to raise capital. And uh, S&P has done some work along with some others to show that these joint ventures and other uh, agreements to borrow money are are quite sizable in terms of the total capital raised in the property market. But the problem is nobody has a handle on the size of it. So when the developers sit down to try to uh, publish their financials, they're probably as, as clueless as as the banks are about what's going on, similar to what happened with, when HNA collapsed, when there was a whole bunch of side deals. So, um, uh, and the fact that what I found most interesting was uh, a week or so ago, a bunch of banks took $2 billion U.S. dollars from Evergrande uh, without apparently clearing it with anybody, um, <laughs> which is... Basically, uh, I, I, I mean, that's not what you generally do in a debt work. I'd usually have to go through the courts and through a process. Uh, but clearly the banks uh, were nervous, and the central government, or at least the PBOC, didn't have enough wherewithal to tell them, look, you can't just take the cash, or whether they probably were saying, you should take the cash because mm. we need the banks. So it's a very messy situation. And, and the, the company itself didn't seem to know either what had happened to the money, which is rather worrying. Yes, they, they started an investigation to find out what yes. happened to their $2 million, which I just was, I was chuckling at that. Yep. Let's move on to Hong Kong. Our new data from Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada shows migration from Hong Kong to Canada has soared to the highest level since 1998. More than 22,500 Hong Kongers have now received Canadian permanent residency work or study permits. 
in 2021. That's up 256% from 2019. But Chief Executive Carrie Lam said yesterday that the number of people settling in Hong Kong or leaving the city cannot accurately reflect the level of confidence they have in the SAR as an international hub. What, what do you make of that, Enzio and Andrew? Well, I, I mean, you know, it, it, people are voting with their feet quite clearly. So I'm afraid that probably I can't imagine that how this helps social stability here, which is Xi Jinping's fervent wish. I also think that the Beijing's liaison office probably knows much more about what's going on on the ground here in Hong Kong because of their people who, who walk the streets mm. as opposed to the government who sits at the ivory tower and sort of just pontificates. I'm very worried by this Christopher Hui of the Financial Services and Treasury, the secretary, saying that he wants to guide more, put forward more measures to broaden the development and scope of the business sector and nurture its talent pool. That's already is beginning to stack of dirigisme, in other words, of the government wanting to control businesses here. Now, that's just basically all wrong. Mm. Um, so, again, I think that I can't imagine how this helps social stability in Hong Kong in the least. Andrew, it's a slightly odd co- comment, isn't it? You would have thought the, the, you know, the best way you show confidence in the place where you live is by deciding whether to stay or leave. And, and leaving after being here many years is not an easy process. You have to go through quite a lot to, to do that. Well, we've seen the BNO um, registrations in the UK uh, increase quite significantly, which is certainly a sign of permanent move. However, I will say, frankly, I've been here quite some time, and I, I'm very uh, confused about how many of the people I know who are leaving or are permanently leaving. A lot have gone because of the draconian um, quarantine measures, and uh, it's possible that if the economy starts booming post-COVID, which could happen, uh, Chinese money will come in, um, then a lot of those people could come back. But I don't, don't have a handle on that. The BNO is the only hard data that we really have. Okay, well, thank you both very much. That's Andrew Collier, Managing Director at Orient Capital Research and Personal Wealth Advisor, NCO von Feil. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Eight twenty-five on the phone now from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. From where you're sitting in in Taipei, you're, you're looking at the mainland. This lockdown uh, in Shanghai. How does it appear to you from there? Well, it, it's not the world trend. Uh, the trend is uh, to open up and to, quote-unquote, live with COVID, uh, notwithstanding even as we speak, some places are still seeing a surge in cases. Uh, so China and, and to a lesser extent or similar extent, uh, Hong Kong as well, continue to follow their own path in, in, in managing COVID, which does include lockdowns of large municipal areas. Uh, frankly, here in Taiwan, uh, we're, we're still in a somewhat conservative approach. Uh, most notably, uh, border controls are still quite severe. It's still very difficult for foreigners to enter Taiwan. They're still quarantined, although it's uh, the quarantine period and, and the structure uh, has been uh, made somewhat 
somewhat less severe than it was for most of last year. Uh, but again, Taiwan, to a lesser extent, is still following a somewhat conservative approach as well. And, and are those lockdown measures there causing concern amongst the business community and the foreign community? Are you seeing uh, the, the, the sort of levels of concern being raised that we're seeing here in Hong Kong and also the level of departures with so many people leaving now? Well, the interesting thing there is that it's, it's frankly, it's been quite difficult to get into China uh, for an extended period of time, pretty much uh, for the last two years. So, uh, you know, a lot of people who uh, were outside of China did not go back, or they have left China over the past few years. Uh, I certainly have uh, uh, clients and, and the people I know in the business community are having difficulty yeah, taking up a new posting in China. They're, they're sitting in the moment somewhere else, such as in uh, Tokyo or Seoul. Or Singapore, uh, so it's definitely a concern. But but there's a flip side of that as well, though. And uh, I could speak from the Taiwan perspective, uh, where a lot of Taiwan companies obviously have operations in China, manufacturing or in services, and uh, they've learned to borrow the phrase. They've learned to live with that as well. And I think that that also factors into uh, uh, policymakers' decision-making, whether that was in Hong Kong over the preceding two months or currently in China, that, that, yeah, the business community will complain. But I think the authorities also realize that, well, you've all learned to kind of work from home or to deal with this. So it's clearly not a deciding factor at the moment they make the decision to do this, whether in Hong Kong or, or Shanghai, although obviously in Hong Kong, uh, the, the the pressure from the business community seems to have had some effect, uh, but but it didn't stop the initial uh, very strict measures. Although again, o- over weeks or months, uh, the the concerns of the business community have been heard and re- resulted in some alleviation of the most severe measures in Hong Kong. Is is this zero COVID strategy on the mainland and in Hong Kong? Is it unsustainable because uh, this COVID is uh, endemic now in the rest of the world, isn't it? It is there. Trying to keep it out just isn't possible, is it, when when it's with pretty well every country around the world now? Correct. And as we've learned, we keep keep seeing new variants uh, as well. And some of those variants could be quite contagious, although uh, people might often uh, not have severe cases of COVID. Uh, but uh, th- this is kind of the nature of the systems uh, and policymakers in China or Hong Kong have that vast authority to make that decision. And, and they've clearly have been willing to do that, uh, certainly in China over the past two years and, and then more recently in Hong Kong. And it, it's also clear that, that Europe or the United States and what they do uh, is not going to have an influence on uh, what what the approach of the central government or the SAR government is. Okay, one other thing going on on the mainland that wants to get your thoughts on that's caused a lot of consternation down under in Australia and New Zealand uh, is the mainland's getting closer to the Solomon Islands offer to provide uh, police support because uh, we, we, we had riots recently and it was the Australian uh, police that was sent in to help. But now China's getting involved as well. Yeah, there's this new security agreement. Uh, if it is finalized, uh, there, there was a draft that was leaked last week, caused a lot of concern in Australia, to a lesser extent the United States and New Zealand. And one of the real interesting thing there is is how Australian government officials rushed to say, oh, we're not surprised we kind of knew about this. And that actually is, is a very interesting or insightful comment, not in a positive way, though, because this is kind of exactly what some of the countries in the region are talking about. It's like, well, you kind of know about our concerns. You know about our 
our lack of investment, you know about our security concerns, and most notably probably their concerns about climate change. Uh, but, but you're not always here. When you're here, you're talking down to us. And, and we, we mm-hmm. could just make friends with, with China, which offers some assistance, whether it's financial or security, uh, without the lecturing. And this is a long-running problem with the countries in the region and their relations with Australia, New Zealand, and to a lesser extent, the United States. It doesn't seem to have been resolved, notwithstanding whether it's the U.S. or Australia, New Zealand. They'll say, oh, but we've, we've invested more money. Or in the case of the U.S., uh, in recent months, they, they said we're going to reopen our embassy in the Solomon Islands. It just never seems to be enough and always seems to be one step behind. Okay, Ross, thank you very much. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Um, around Asian markets, stocks seem to be moving in different directions this morning. The SX200 is up a third of a percent in Australia. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about 0.4%. Cosby in South Korea is up 0.4%. Looks like a flat open uh, for the Hang Seng here in Hong Kong when trading gets going in just uh, about an hour's time. Brent crude oil is at $109.53 a barrel. Gold right now uh, is trading at $1,931 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please stay tuned for the news, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and James Ockenden this morning. The weather forecast. Sunny periods, hot in the afternoon with a maximum temperature of around 28 degrees. And then it's going to become windy and appreciably cooler on Friday. Some rain from Saturday to Sunday morning and temperatures are going to fall to a minimum of around 14 degrees. That temperature right now is 24 degrees and the relative humidity is 67%. 8.31, here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Chief Executive Kerry Lam has expressed disappointment over the resignation of two senior British judges as non-permanent judges of the Court of Final Appeal. Lord Reid, who's the president of the UK Supreme Court, made the announcement in a statement on behalf of himself and Lord Hodge. Lord Reid said he agreed with the British government that judges of the Supreme Court cannot continue to sit in Hong Kong, as he put it, without appearing to endorse an administration which has departed from the values of political freedom and freedom of expression. Meanwhile, the government has stressed that judicial independence remains as robust as ever in the SAR. Joanne Wong reports. In a statement, the government pointed out that judicial independence is constitutionally guaranteed under the basic law. It said the departure of foreign judges will not in any way affect our judicial independence and also expressed vehement opposition to the UK Parliament to what it described as absurd and misleading accusations against the national security law and Hong Kong's legal system. The authorities claimed that a debate by UK lawmakers may have influenced the rest of the two judges, and that is clear evidence of external political pressure on judges of an otherwise independent judiciary. Hong Kong's police force has announced it would relax its residency requirements for new recruits to counter a manpower shortage. Ben Che has the details. The force will remove a prerequisite that applicants must have lived in Hong Kong for at least seven years. Starting from Friday, people who are permanent residents here will be eligible to apply to become constables, inspectors and auxiliary police officers. Police Superintendent Baron Chan told a press conference that the relaxation could enable the force to attract people who study and graduate from institutions on the mainland and overseas. He admitted there is a manpower shortage in the police force with 5,000 vacancies yet to be filled. 
Defense Department spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. believes Russian President Vladimir Putin may not be getting the full picture from his advisors about how his troops are performing in the war against Ukraine. Mr. Kirby warned that this could affect Mr. Putin's decision-making in ongoing peace talks with the Ukrainian government. If Mr. Putin is misinformed or uninformed about what's going on inside Ukraine, um, it's his military. It's his war. He chose it. Uh, And so uh, the fact that he may not have all the context, that he may not fully understand the degree to which his forces are failing in Ukraine, that's a little discomforting, uh, to be honest with you. And um, it's certainly um, one outcome of that could could be... um, uh, it could be a less than faithful effort at negotiating some sort of settlement here. Thank you for joining us for the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Updates with me.